Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. I'm Ido Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 12th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Russian President Vladimir Putin presided over a stripped-down Victory Day parade in Red Square on the 9th of May, amid security concerns after last week's drone attack on the Kremlin. Just one tank, a World War II-era T-34, took part in the military procession, an illustration of how Russia's army has been degraded over a year of war in Ukraine. Today, civilization is once again at a decisive turning point. A real war has been unleashed against our motherland. But we have rebuffed international terrorism, and we will protect residents of the Donbass, and we will ensure our security. We discuss the parade and the state of the Russian war effort. And I discuss this Sunday's Turkish elections, which could see President Recep Tayyip Erdogan toppled after two decades in power. Istanbul, on the 14th of May, are we protecting the future of our children? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. On the 9th of May 2000, two days after his inauguration ceremony, Vladimir Putin presided over his first Victory Day parade. By the Russian president's latest standards, it was a tame affair. There were no tanks, no intercontinental ballistic missile launchers rumbling through Red Square. 23 years later, there is not much to celebrate. Putin presides over a diminished country with a failing economy. His military turned out to be much better at marching lockstep through Red Square than fighting in Ukraine, where it has been humbled by the pride and patriotism of the Ukrainian forces fighting to defend their country. Casey, that was taken from your excellent piece in the magazine this week, sort of looking at this Victory Day parade in historical context and especially placing it in the context of Russia's obviously disastrous war effort in Ukraine. Can you just run us through how the Victory Day parade unfolded and what it tells us about where Russia is right now? Yeah, over the last just over two decades, 23 years, Vladimir Putin has really made this parade and Victory Day, May 9th, into a real centerpiece of the Russian political calendar. And we had gotten used in past years to these 
tremendously bombastic militaristic processions where you'd see you know these huge columns of tanks the intercontinental ballistic missile launchers rolling through red square and it was a real projection of russia's power and it was an opportunity for putin to place himself front and center and to show how he had recovered russia's as he views it rightful place in the world as a great power. What we saw this year was, frankly, a very forlorn contrast to that. So you saw the reality of that Russian power, which we've seen over the past 14 months now, how Russia's forces have fared in an actual war in Ukraine, as opposed to marching in these parades through Red Square. And it was really striking, firstly, just the scale of this parade. So when you look at a couple of years ago in 2021, there were 197 vehicles taking part. This year, there were thought to have been 51 and I think a focus of a lot of the coverage was the one tank. Um, so in the past, you would see these, you know, advanced main battle tanks, you know, the, the elite of the Russian mechanized forces rumbling through Red Square. This year, we got one solitary T-34, which was made during the Second World War. So it was a real stark contrast with what we've come to expect for these parades. And I think the danger for Putin is that this is the opposite of what he intended. You know, instead of a display of Russian strength, it's a display of how Russia has been weakened under his leadership. The problem with this concentrated, personalized dictatorship is that then you're also on the hook for everything that goes wrong. He has dominated Russian politics for the last two decades. And this, this is the state um, of the armed forces now. I should say it doesn't mean that there is literally one tank available to them. Um, I think it is more likely that they understood the optics for the domestic audience would be, would be pretty complicated if they were parading tanks in Red Square, which are desperately needed at the front. So I think that doesn't mean that the stock of Russian tanks is down to one. But it does show they are no longer able to mount these displays of force through the center of Moscow. And it, his speech was, I think, just over seven minutes long, pretty terse, really a collection of, of past talking points delivered pretty angrily, as we've come to expect in Red Square. But this did not look like Putin at the height of its powers and Russia bestriding the world stage as a great force to be reckoned with. This looked like really quite a depleted Putin and quite a depleted parade, at least by, by past year's standards. It strikes me that obviously a military parade and military hardware rolling down the center of an authoritarian capital doesn't necessarily represent the actual military strength of that country. North Korea is very good at these kinds of things in terms of actual military capability. It's got a massive army, but it's not particularly considered a very strong military. But the flip side to that is that if there is no hardware available, and there's very little demonstrated during these parades when audiences are used to, to watching these grand displays of supposedly cutting-edge technology and so on, then that's when it begins to signal weakness. And that's why this parade was so maybe embarrassing for the Kremlin. There's one interesting aspect of it, which was that the leaders of, I think, seven countries in the former Soviet Union, so I think all the Central Asian countries and then Armenia and Belarus, attended the Victory Parade. That was Particularly surprising, I think, because some of these countries have had wobbles in terms of their relationship with Russia. Kazakhstan and Armenia in particular have recently begun to signal that they are turning away from Russia. And yet they were there on Victory Day at this most important day in, in the Russian calendar. You've touched on this before. Can you maybe talk about the significance of the attendance of the leaders of these seven countries? Yeah, I think this is some 
consolation for Putin on a fairly bad day that these leaders who many of them, particularly Kazakhstan's president, there's real doubt about whether they would attend. He has pushed back publicly against Russia's narrative of the war in Ukraine. So it was really striking to see him taking part in these ceremonies, which are understood very clearly to be using the memory of that past war to justify the current invasion of Ukraine. I don't think we should read too much into it. I mean, I think when I looked at Central Asia and the context of the China-Russia relationship in a recent piece, the explanation that I got from scholars who focus on the region is that firstly, we shouldn't make the same mistake of Central Asian republics that we have done as a broad analytical community about Ukraine in the past, which is to present it as a state with no agency between two great powers. We should look at the individual calculations of each of these countries and what their leaders stood to gain by coming to Moscow and consolidating the relationship there. But I think just the reality is now it's not as straightforward as it was for Russia in that region. You know, Russia Russia was able to send troops to Kazakhstan um, before this war to put down protests there, which it would be very stretched to do now. It's not clear at all that Russia would be able to provide the sort of security underpinning that it has traditionally been understood to do in previous years. China is an increasing presence in the region. And a lot of these leaders are really hedging their bets. They are nurturing relationships with both China and with Russia. I do wonder whether one factor is that China is convening a summit, the China Central Asia Summit, at the end of next week, the 18th and 19th of May. So I think ahead of that very public meeting with China, it perhaps makes sense for many of these leaders also to show that they are interested in continuing the relationship with Russia and trying to sort of maximize the benefits of both relationships rather than I think if they had stayed away from the Victory Day Parade and then gone to the China Central Asia Summit, we would all be writing stories about how they've made their choice. They're shifting towards Beijing. So I think we should see this less as a sort of clear vote of confidence in Putin and more as savvy politicking and managing these very consequential relationships. Katie, I know you've, and we have talked about this before on the podcast, but is there any anything new from the last few weeks about how the Russian population is interpreting things like the state of the Victory Day Parade? Obviously, there was the drone attack, Prigozhin talking out ever more overtly against the Kremlin and against the armed forces. You know, how much of this is now filtering through or is it does it continue to be blanketed in a thick layer of propaganda? So the thick layer of propaganda is definitely still there. It's definitely attempting to blanket. But I think what you've seen over the course of the war is people turn away from state TV, which was overwhelmingly the source of information. I think 86% or so at the start of the war watched Russian state television on a regular basis. I think that figure is now down to in the 60s. So there has been a turning away from the official propaganda outlets it's very hard to measure public opinion and real attitudes towards the war. But one consistent feature that we've seen since the start is at the polls, there is a group that is very opposed to the war. There's a group that's very hardline support of the war. But the majority approach has seemed to be to try to keep your head down, 
get on with your own life to the extent that it's possible to tune out the fact that the war is happening. I, I've written about in the in the piece for the magazine this week, this increase in attacks within Russia itself in recent months, particularly since the start of the year, perhaps eroding that sense that the war is something that's happening remotely in another country and that, yes, you now have to live with the fear of mobilization of yourself, your friends, your relatives, but it wasn't necessarily going to come home to your individual towns and cities. I think the increase in drone attacks that we've seen in recent months is sort of pushing at that sense of certainty. And it was really striking to me, I mean, watching footage of the Victory Day Parade, Every time they went to the wide shot, that's the image that we saw last week with the drones coming into the shot and exploding above the domed roof of the Senate palace. And so that was a really striking projection of the capacity to reach, you know, central Moscow, the very heart of this supposedly heavily fortified compound. So I, I think that imagery and that contrast is striking. I think another important element that was missing and that I think we can read something into was the absence of the immortal regiment this year. There has been this tradition, which we've talked about in the past and have written about, started out as a sort of grassroots initiative to walk holding pictures, photographs of relatives or people who had fought during the war to try to sort of put the people back into what had become these very militaristic celebrations, which of course had then been co-opted by the authorities and had become this huge parade that Putin marches in the front of holding a picture of his father. That was cancelled this year. That was moved online. And I think one of the calculations has to be, it was talked about as security concerns. And yes, there would definitely be security concerns about large crowds of people gathering in the center of Moscow and other cities, potentially presenting a target. But I think the bigger concern for the regime was likely that it doesn't trust its people. It's very concerned that people might use that occasion to protest and that even if they didn't, even if what they did was march with photos of the perhaps tens of thousands of soldiers who have died since the start of this war, that would be a very unwelcome image and that would be very difficult to control. So I think it's striking that the regime almost doesn't seem to trust its people enough now to have them do that, which suggests that the sort of, you know, this image in the past that the nation has bought wholesale into this narrative, clearly the regime doesn't believe that's true or at least it's not prepared to put it to the test and risk finding out that it's not. And how has this been taken in Ukraine? I think a couple of years ago, the official victory day in, in Ukraine was changed from the Soviet uh, 9th of May to the European 8th of May. That's because the time zone in Moscow meant that news of Nazi Germany's surrender was the following day in Moscow, I think, which is obviously a kind of very symbolic change. And Zelensky in his victory day address or the day address explicitly made parallels between the fight that Ukraine is leading now and the fight that Ukraine and obviously other allied countries fought against the Germans in the 1940s. What's the view from Ukraine on that? Yeah, so Zelensky this year signed a decree moving the anniversary that was previously the comparative victory day on May 9th to May 8th, which will now be the day of remembrance and victory over Nazism in the Second World War. And May 9th will be known as the Day of Europe, in common with Europe Day celebrations across the continent. I thought it was very striking listening to Zelensky's speech on the new Victory Day, May 8th, compared to Putin's speech. There was a lot of emphasis in Zelensky's speech, which I think probably tracks more with how the war is commemorated in the UK, in the US, on this sense of remembrance of the scale of the tragedy 
rather than the sort of bombastic triumphalist victory day tone that you hear in Moscow. And there was one line in particular that stood out. Zelensky talked about, instead of saying, we can do it again, which has become this sort of unofficial slogan of the victory day celebrations in Moscow, you see it on the backs of cars, 1945 to Berlin, we can do it again. Zelensky said, we must defend the meaning of never again. So I thought it was really evocative and, and very powerful to have a leader who is currently, you know, his nation is at war. He fully understands what war means. It's not an abstract, um, triumphal slogan that you can throw around. It was very powerful to, to strike that balance. And I think that particularly when the core of the Russian accusations against Ukraine is that it's been taken back over by militarism and, and Nazism, to have Zelensky be the one to talk about never again. And remembering the horrors of that last war was pretty powerful. And then, of course, you had the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, visiting Kyiv on May 9th and celebrating then the new Europe Day in Ukraine with Zelensky calling Ukraine the beating heart of today's European values. So I thought that was a real striking and important contrast uh, between Russia and Ukraine around this anniversary. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 Euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
Now let's go to Turkey, where the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, faces his greatest political challenge yet in elections on Sunday, with polls suggesting a united opposition could end his two decades in power. Amid an economic crisis, and months after earthquakes killed more than 50,000 people, displacing millions more, the parliamentary and presidential votes will decide who leads the country of nearly 85 million. Jeremy, you've been following this very closely. Can you bring us up to speed on where the campaign stands? As I understand it, Erdogan has been vilifying the opposition. There's been some violence against opposition figures. So how have these final days of the campaign unfolded? Yes, we are in the final stretch of the campaign now. The election is this coming Sunday, the 14th. And the polls suggest that Erdogan is still slightly behind. There are debates as to how much how much store one can set by them. But if they're correct, then Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who's the main opposition candidate for president, is on the cusp of securing a majority at the first round this weekend. So he's on a about 48, 49% roughly in most of the polls, with Erdogan closer to 44, 45%. Um, those don't add up to 100 because there are two minor further candidates in the low single digits. There have been a series of increasingly bombastic rallies. The air war in Turkey is not particularly competitive because some 80 to 90% of the media is, or the conventional media at least, is loyal to Erdogan. And so the campaigns played out in door-to-door campaigning and in particular in big rallies, the largest of which took place in Istanbul, held by Erdogan and his supporters last Sunday. They claim it had about 1.7 million participants bust in from around the country, which gives a sense of the scale of these things. The opposition has managed numbers not far off that itself. But as you as you know, the tone of the campaign has become increasingly raw and increasingly harsh, particularly from Erdogan and his AKP. We have seen the president call his opponents drunkards and perverts. The opposition mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamolu, was pelted with stones at a recent event with some 15 people reportedly injured. Edwin's really pulling out all the stops. His latest pitch is that he will, or that he's increasing public sector workers pay by a staggering 45%. So really throwing everything he can at winning this, where the polls suggest that he is slipping behind. And what are you going to be watching on Sunday and in the immediate aftermath of the vote? Yeah, so the polls open on Sunday at 8am local time and close at 5pm. That's, again, local time, two hours ahead of the UK and seven hours ahead of the east coast of the US. During election day itself, one question is whether there'll be any signs of fraud at the ballot stations. The opposition is not particularly concerned about that in urban areas where there is very heavy monitoring and these things are quite transparent, but there are greater concerns about rural areas, and especially in the earthquake zone, where obviously a lot of people killed, injured, and many more displaced, which obviously creates more openings for that sort of thing. As I say, the polls close at 5pm local time. The the media is not allowed to report on interim results until midnight. So we should have our first sort of formal sense of the results and the picture immediately after midnight in Turkey. And I think then there'll be several key things to look at. The first will be obviously where the if Kilish Dorolu is indeed ahead of Erdogan, whether he is passing 50%, which would obviously secure him the presidency and obviate the need for a second round two weeks later. If not, well, in any case, but especially if not, the next question is how big his lead is, if he is indeed ahead. Obviously, the narrower it is, the more 
scope Erdogan and his supporters have for muddying the waters and challenging the result or even attempting to defy it, a la Trump. A third thing which has received a little less attention in the in the international press, but is still very significant, particularly given the opposition's plans to restore the parliamentary system in Turkey, is the outcome of the parliamentary election itself. Turkey has a unicameral parliament of 600 seats. So if the six parties supporting Kilistarolu plus leftist parties and pro-Kurdish forces beyond them together secure more than 300, then that gives them a simple majority. Another key number is 360, which would give them enough strength in the parliament to call a referendum on constitutional change. So that's that would be 60% of the parliament. So that's a very significant number as well. One final thing on election night itself, I think you will see a real battle of the narratives. The, more, the narrower the results seem, the more intense, with the opposition really briefing that it is going to really try and use social media to defy any attempt by Erdogan and his supporters to twist the narrative of the results or stir doubt as to their legitimacy. So I think that we will see the tensions and the intensity that have marked the last days of the campaign carry through into election night. There are concerns about violence. Kilish Darol, who's actually told his supporters not to go out and celebrate if he does win because of concern about armed groups loyal to Erdogan which I think just goes to show kind of on what a knife edge the country is as it goes into the election. And finally, you've written your column this week on how to defeat authoritarians. I think you, you named five of them. What was your argument? How do we defeat authoritarianism? I'd like to say I gave some sort of definitive answer to that question. Obviously, it was more observational column. I looked at five authoritarians in strained democracies in recent years. Donald Trump in the US, of course, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, and finally Erdogan in Turkey. And the fortunes of those five authoritarians obviously have varied greatly in the last few years, with some of them hanging on to power, others of them losing. And I've tried to draw some interim observations about what makes a successful opposition bit to dislodge a figure like that. And three key points that struck me were, first of all, you do need a combination of unity and pluralism in the opposition. So the opposition must you know, in successful cases, in some way rally together, but in such a way that it can build a broad electoral coalition to dislodge the authoritarians. There's a balancing act there. The second is it needs to have something of a unifying positive agenda for what it wants to do with power once the authoritarian is gone. In both Hungary and Israel, we saw the lack of glue, as it were, holding the opposition alliance or the anti-authoritarian alliance or the whatever you want to call it, the rival alliance together, ultimately acting as a, a boost for the authoritarian in question, either keeping Orban in power and helping to bring Netanyahu back to power after a little more than a year out of it. And the third point was that I think the state of voters' material circumstances matters a lot. There is such a thing as an authoritarian bargain where particularly middle ground voters are willing to tolerate trading in effectively some of their freedoms in return for a degree of stability and prosperity. Strong man, strong leadership, strong results. Now, if that breaks down, I think there, there are real chances to, to remove that figure from power. So ultimately, I think that's what happened with Trump. He did not handle the pandemic well, ditto Bolsonaro. Whereas with Orban, who, of course, held on to power in Hungary last year, he pumped the welfare state full of handouts for people. He was able to put a floor under living standards in many ways, to the extent that the opposition couldn't get a foothold at those polls. Now, bringing all this together would suggest that the opposition in Turkey is on track to remove Erdogan, in that all of those things are true of the opposition in Turkey. After many years of being quite divided and quite fragmented, they've pulled together. They've got quite a detailed agenda for government. This is a 200-page document you can read about what they want to do on the economy, foreign policy, restoring rule of law, 
And the economy in Turkey is in a terrible state after several years of Erdogan's erratic and eccentric economic policies driving inflation. So if those patterns are correct, then it might be goodbye Erdogan in the not too distant future. Point that I conclude with in the column is that there is such a thing as a democracy that's too far gone. I didn't include Russia in that list of states because it just, in my view, doesn't belong quite to the same category. It is, it is no longer an even quasi-competitive uh, democracy. And big question about Turkey is, does with the capture of institutions and the quashing of independent voices that has gathered pace over the last years under Erdogan, can an opposition with a credible case against Erdogan still win? And that too, I think, is a question that we will have some light shed on this weekend. Can I ask one follow-up, Jeremy, which is what is known about Erdogan's relations with the military and with the security forces? Is there any indication of where their loyalties are and how they might react to an Erdogan defeat? So Erdogan does have a lot of influence over the police forces in Turkey. And we saw that, for example, in the case of the, as I mentioned, the mayor of Istanbul being pelted with rocks. The police just essentially stood by as that happened in a city in eastern Turkey a few days ago which I think indicates something of their loyalties. With the army, it's much less the case. In that sense, it's a little different from concerns that were raised ahead of Brazil's election late last year. There were close institutional and cultural links between Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo and the Brazilian military that are just not the case when it comes to Turkey's military. And the view is that they are very unlikely to, to step in. So that is, is a relief. A point that was made to me a few weeks ago when I visited several times was that Turkey's democracy has been brutally abused and corrupted and twisted and weakened by Erdogan. But there are still strong rival centres of power in the country. It's a large country. It's polycentric, um, sociologically, just geographically, economically. And attempts by Erdogan to distort election or twist election results in the past have actually been unsuccessful. So in 2019, in the case of the Istanbul election that brought Imam Olu to power, Edwin himself, of course, a former mayor of Istanbul. It was quite a narrow defeat for the AKP. They attempted to challenge it. There was a rerun and they, in the process, turned a narrow defeat to a resounding defeat. And so there are ways in which the Turkish system can still push back. Now, whether that would still be the case after five more years of Edwin is another question. But for now, we will see. But it looks like the institutions are strong enough to withstand attempts by him to undermine them. I'm sure we're going to come back to this story after the elections. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. Our producer has been Misha Frankel-Dubal. Thank you for listening and until next time.